Hello and welcome. This is On Mike with Jordan Rich, where conversation with creative people is welcomed. Conversation with people who have a lot to say. I'm a proud supporter of many veterans' causes, and it's an honor today to welcome a guest who, along with his amazing team of professionals, is dedicated to treating the invisible wounds of war, the impact that war has on our troops, the incredible toll taken by PTSD, addiction, and associated mental illness. My guest is retired Brigadier General Jack Hammond, who heads up the Home Base Program, having treated 25,000 veterans and their families and trained over 85,000 clinicians nationwide. This is an ongoing, serious problem that Home Base is tackling, with the help of the Boston Red Sox Foundation. So let's welcome retired Brigadier General Jack Hammond from the Home Base Program, who joins us now on mic. First of all, tell us a little bit about you. You're a retired Brigadier General. How did you come to Home Base? Um, well, it was, it was an interesting route. I, um, when I got back from my last uh, deployment to Afghanistan, I had 60 days leave uh, where I could relax. You know, I was, I was pretty much gone from home for almost a year and a half. Um, and, I, you know, they give you that time to, you know, to, you know, reconnect with your family and right. relax a little bit. And so during that time, I was sitting down with my wife enjoying uh, a nice adult beverage. And uh, she asked me how long I planned on staying in the Army, which caught me off guard. Um, because I'd, I'd been in about 31 years in our entire marriage. And I laughed and said, you want me to get out? And she laughed and said, that ship sailed a long time ago. <laughs> and she said, but what is there left to do you haven't done? And what is there you want to do that, you know, you've got your heart set on? And after five minutes in a Tangerine tonic, I could not figure out what that job is that I was dying to do. You know, I'd done everything I'd hoped to do in the military, um, you know, my goal was to make lieutenant colonel and command a battalion somewhere. Um, and I had gone through all that back in 2004, commanding a battalion in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so I had checked every block I had set to myself as a young lieutenant. And, and frankly, I just couldn't think of, you know, anything else. And somebody told me, you'd know when you're ready to retire. Mm. Um, and, and when you have that, you know, when, when that when that passion and drive are gone, it is time to step aside for somebody that's still got goals and things. And I never wanted to hang on. And so I, I got up the next morning and uh, sent General Odierno a letter. Um, he was the chief of staff of the Army requesting retirement. Um, and when a general asks to leave, they, they just say yes, because, you know, <laughs> why would they want to keep you once you said you want to leave? Right. Um, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of great men and women right behind you looking to fill those shoes. <laughs> and so... Um, I planned to take a year off and, and figure out what I was going to do, and I, I, had, I had heard um, from a friend, I was taking a course over at Harvard, that the uh, Red Sox and Mass General were looking for somebody to lead home base, and strangely enough, about two or three weeks earlier, I had checked them out, and I'd met with the chief operating officer to find out what they, services they had available, because they had a number of soldiers that had come home needing help. Mm-hmm. And so I reached back to Mike Gallard, um, and he told me they were definitely looking for that, and... Long story short, they added my name to the list of 25 admirals and generals being considered. Uh, and after a six-month process, I was fortunate enough to be selected. Wow. Talk about serendipity. You were in the right place at the right time. You probably look back and, and see the difference in how we approach this problem, the problem being PTSD, which is out of control. And what was done when you were a young soldier compared to what's being done or focused on today? Well, I can tell you, um, as a young officer, um, back back in the early 1980s, um, there was no real talk of PTSD, but we saw it. And so I can tell you on at least several occasions that I remember. So if you put if you if you kind of put the wayback machine on in your mind's eye, 
you know, when I came in as a lieutenant in 1983, um, that was about, you know, eight years after the war in Vietnam. And, and if you look at it, you know, to my eyes, I was in Iraq 18 years ago. Mm. You know what I mean? And I still know, you know, serving Iraq right. veterans. Um, and so in 1983, a lot of my mid-career soldiers were Vietnam veterans. And alcohol and PTSD are a bad combination. And we'd see that once in a while where this amazing soldier would have too much to drink after work, you know, you know, on a Saturday night. And I'd get a call to get out of the barracks and you'd find this guy's a sobbing mess and, you know, you know, in the shower with his clothes on or just, you know, just in the fetal position. And, yeah. and there was no mechanism to deal with it because number one, nobody wanted anyone to know that they had a breakdown like that. Of course. Um, and so you'd spend the night with them and kind of nurse them up until they, you know, they sobered up and they got some sleep. And, and it was just, you would, it was just remarkable because I'd see that soldier in the next morning, um, starch uniform, ready to go. And I'd say, how you doing? And he'd look quizzically at me. <laughs> mm. I'm good to go, sir. I just, sorry about last night. I'm embarrassed about it. I said, no, no, no worry. I just want to make sure you're okay. Yep. Good to go, sir. Mm. And so you wouldn't follow up on it because they just had a bad moment. Um, flash forward to 2003 after, you know, leading a couple combat commands. Um, we still weren't really looking at that. Um, because if somebody, you know, when we got ready for a second deployment, they played the, um, uh, PTSD card, as we would look at it, we looked at him trying to get out of something. You know what I mean? And it was sure. still, the stigma right. was still pretty strong. Right, right. It, and as far as traumatic brain injury, if you walked away from an IED with a little bit of blood trickling out of your ear and, you know, a little your bell rung, um, you high five because so many of our colleagues didn't make it. Mm. You know, they were catastrophically injured, either killed or maimed um, with the IED. And so you didn't want to put yourself in the same category as someone that had a leg ripped off and say, you know what I mean? So you just, I'm fine. I'm good to go. It wasn't until around 2007 or eight that number one, we started understanding TBI, traumatic brain injury yes, uh, and the effect of it. And then the second part was around that same time, we started to see a, a steep rise in suicide amongst our actively serving veterans because they now had two and three combat deployments. And it was you could, the, the mental health effect of this was taking its toll, um, and we were losing um, a, a soldier a day to suicide. The, the number of troops who are dying that way in that fashion, I think, outnumber the number of troops that die in battle in some cases. Well, the, the, the easy number to look at retrospectively now that the you know wars in Iraq and Afghanistan are officially over, we lost seven thousand and seventy. Um, active duty service members. When I say active duty, National Guard Reserve activated um, and regular regular forces. Uh, 7,070 were killed in action. 30,000 died by suicide. Mm, incredible. You know, from that same cohort. And 100,000 total veterans died since 9-11. A good point, because many of those deaths could be directly related to the suffering that they, they went through, whether it be addiction or poor health or any number of things, correct? Oh, that's correct. And, and, but, you know, you go to the cause of it, a lot of it had to do with their combat service. And, yes. and I, I can share the wisdom of an old sergeant major at one time who was a two tours and three war survivor, you know, a veteran. Um, and I asked him one time about that back in the, um, you know, late 80s before Desert Storm. And I said, so, you know, you hear a lot about PTSD and a lot of Vietnam vets. I said, what do you think? And he said, well, he said, a lot of guys are screwed up when they go into the service, just like everywhere else. He 
year of combat doesn't help at all. Mm. And that was pretty pretty profound. So no matter what you went into, you know, the military with as far as any kind of challenges, a year in close combat fighting where you're in life and death situation and someone's trying to kill you every day isn't going to make the situation any better. And General, comment, if you will, on the fact that we now have a military that uh, invests in female troops as well as males. This affects women, if not the same ratio, maybe even more so than men, I'm reading? Well, so you've got, I would say that the effects on, on, on men or women are relatively the same, but one of the things that it's kind of one of those ugly aspects of anything is, you know, you've got military sexual assaults that take place um, periodically. Mm. Um, and, it, and by the way, it's on men and women. Um, the, the, the percentages in some cases um, are higher um, with respect to women, but the uh, the numbers are, are relatively close. Mm. Um, mm. And, and that's a scary, insidious thing that happens once in a while. And by the way, it happens on, you know, one in five women on college campuses. Of course, so, yeah. Nationally, it's a problem, but so if you're dealing with that type of issue and you're dealing with combat issues, um, you, you know, you're, you're, there's a, you're getting hit with two possible things that, that bring, you know, a certain amount of trauma. Um, the other part is they, they kind of get hit on the backswing, too. You know, it, it's still in this day and age, it's odd, but you'll see a young woman going to the VA for help or, or someplace. And someone, some guy that just is a knucklehead will say, oh, you're here with your husband. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know old I mean? habits so die hard. Like they, yeah. They, yeah, yeah. so the service gets minimized to some degree. And, and you, know, we, you know, I had some amazingly brave women uh, that were, you know, were up in the turret on a gun in an unarmored Humvee, you know, wearing thin-skinned body armor um, in the heart of Fallujah. And they did not hesitate. And, they, you know, they deserved every honor and recognition they got. But to come back and be minimized. You know, it's another, you know, another slap in the face. I, I spoke with a young woman last night at Fenway that was one of my soldiers. She had to leave her seven-month-old baby when we left for Afghanistan and Iraq on back-to-back tours. And when we got home 15 months later, you know, the husband had the little boy and he was walking. Uh, I mean, that's just a whole other thing yeah. that, you know, and I don't, I, I hope it doesn't appear chauvinistic, but I think there is a special bond between a mother, especially with a seven-month-old baby, having to leave home. And she did it without, without hesitation because of her duty. If nothing else, we're at least, I say we collectively, more people need to, we at least recognize the true meaning of sacrifice. Got so many tentacles. And one of the things I wanted to talk to you about and have you highlight is the, the method and the work of home base. Because it's not only the treatment for the soldiers, the returning soldiers, the veterans, but also their families. This is much more important than just the individual alone because family is affected very much so. Can you just talk us through the, the mission statement of home base? And then I've got a couple of specific questions. Sure. And so our, our mission is, we are, our reason for existence is we heal the invisible wounds of war. And, 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 you know, the people we care for are just, as you said, it's not only the active duty service members, it's the veterans, but it's also the military family members. And what we've been able to do over the past decade is go from an initial outpatient clinic that was a very traditional um, setting where you'd come see a clinician once a week, and we would care for um, the, that population. It would be any military family member, self-identified, any veteran, um, and any active duty service member. But what we've been able to do um, by leveraging the amazing resources of MGH, Harvard Medical School faculty members, um, Spalding Rehab, and Mass Ioneer is create amazing clinical solutions 
to complex problems that previously didn't exist to include a 14-day program for PTSD and traumatic brain injury that compresses two years of therapy into two weeks. Um, that was a game changer for us because we're able to treat veterans from anywhere in the world and get a 60%, 60% reduction in their mm. symptoms uh, when traditional therapy might get 5%, 10%, you know, doing once yeah. a week for 15 weeks. We're able to get a 60% and go from, take someone from non-functioning to functioning. Important to note, and I'm a little parochial as you are, we are in Boston-centric, and you got some of the best medical minds on the planet, and they are just there as a resource, and you've put them to work in, in a great team effort. I've talked to people who have gone through the program. It's more than just traditional therapy, if you will. It's, it's an evaluation that's very comprehensive. There's group therapy. There's also, I'll call them integrative therapies. There's yoga. There's uh, exercise. There's art. It's a, really a full, well-rounded program for the full individual, isn't it? Oh, yeah. So that, so that 14 days, we have from 8 in the morning to 8 at night. It is, it is the word intensive clinical program is, is underscore intensive. Uh, we partnered with the Benson Henry Institute for Mind-Body Medicine, and they get a six-week mind-body medicine program that's designed to teach about the physiology and the impact of stress and anxiety on your body. And so that, you know, what we try and do is we not only unlock the clinical challenge with them, by working with them with art therapy, music therapy, and all that integrative medicine we talked about, um, mind-body medicine. We also get into diet, nutrition, and physical fitness. Um, and we have a strength and conditioning team that works with them on getting them back on a fitness program, not so much you know to get a military kind of workout, but to get a life workout so that they're healthy. Um, and if, as you can imagine, everybody knows instinctively if, you, if you're high stressed out, you go for a walk or you go to the gym. Um, but we teach them why that's important and why to build that into their lifestyle so that they can be healthy. Is the toughest thing in the world to still crack that, I'll use macho in the general sense, macho sense of uh, I'm going to keep a stiff upper lip and I'm a soldier and I've got to keep it together. Is that, do you see that breaking down in a good way that people are now realizing there are those like you and your team who are here to help? You know what it is? They're, on one side, there's still a little bit of a stigma, but most of the senior leaders in the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, especially in the land forces, the Army and the Marines, um, all the senior leaders now were, were junior or mid-career leaders when the war started, and they now have five, six, six, five or six years of combat. They felt it. They've seen it. They've seen the impact. They know them, the guys that have committed suicide, and they understand what's going on. And so the stigma from the senior leadership, I know certainly from the Army and Marines, understand it. Mm. Um, the problem is, we raise our, our, our warriors, and, and again, I'm kind of focused on land-based people that fight on the land because it's a little different in this ship and in the sky. It's a different set of traumas. But the land-based forces, we train them to play hurt like you would in a football game or a lacrosse game. Mm-hmm. Because if, if, you, if you get a minor injury and you're on the battlefield, you can't call timeout. That's <laughs> you true. Gotta, you gotta, <laughs> you got to suck it up and keep going or you, someone will kill you, right? I mean, we, so we teach them to play hurt. The problem is, when there's a break in the action, they have to make an assessment. Are you, are you injured or are you hurt? Now, if you're hurt, you, you suck it up. You know, you, you know, tape an aspirin to it because you can keep moving. If you're injured, you require medical attention, and we medevac you. And that's why there is a distinction. If you, and we'll ask them, are you injured or are you hurt? Because if you're injured, the mission's over for you, and we have to stop the mission, call the medevac, get you out of there. If this is just hurt and you got to play through it, that's different, right? Um, sure. 
when it comes to mental health injuries, because they don't have that debilitating catastrophic injury that some of their friends had, they think they're hurt and they should be able to suck. They should be, they, this is, this is self-imposed. They're hurt, not injured. And they try and push through it. But after 10 years of not pushing through it and burning out a marriage or, or, or thinking about taking their life, they start to realize this. Um, to put a finer point on this, uh, the, the medical leadership of SEAL Team 6 reached out to us probably two, three years ago and asked us to create a program for our special operations team members. And from 2017 to 2018, we saw a 300% increase in suicides within that community. Mm. 300% increase. Um, and that had to do with the fact that we were moving from using our conventional forces after 2012 to special operation team members across the globe. So their spin cycle was much higher. Um, we looked at the profile of these men, and they were looking at 15 to 20 combat deployments, 5,000 parachute jumps, thousands of detonation events, concussive events mm -hmm. where they blow stuff up. You know what I mean? And every one of sure. those um, causes a concussive event in your in your brain and it, the cumulative effect has a, has a staggering impact on you and so um, they asked us to create this program um, we did um, we piloted it and now run it um, we created a special program for them it's called combat comprehensive brain health and treatment we've had 225 green beret delta force members army rangers and navy seals come through it and we have roughly 400 on the wait list and to, to your point a moment ago the initial hundred or so, when we talked to them about PTSD, they all said, no, I don't have any. Right, right. They were just coming for the, the uh, traumatic brain injury. But sure. after the five-day program they went through where it's assessment evaluation using the best resources of MGH, um, sports medicine team doing musculoskeletal exams on their neck, back, and shoulders, the same folks who see the Bruins and the Patriots. And then they go to Mass Eye and Ear, you know, experts. Um, they find these weird vision things and hearing problems. Anyway, the long and short is at the end of the uh, at the end of the four or five days, they gave them a list of diagnoses to include. Almost every one of them had significant PTSD. They would push back a little bit initially and mm -hmm. say, "No, no, I told you I don't." And the clinician would say, "Well, I'm not asking anymore. <laughs> I'm, I'm telling." Right. And 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 if you trust me on all these other things, you'll listen to me on this. Excellent. Um, but to a to yeah. a man, they were they, these are you know these are action oriented people. They said, "All right, what do I do about it?" Well, um, and they, they would they would almost immediately sign up for the two week program and come back for that. That's interesting. I was thinking too about that very important toll free eight hundred two seven three talk or two seven three eight two five five number, the emergency line, if you will, if you're in crisis or somebody in the family. One of the great breaches of that divide is when somebody listens. When somebody says, "I'm going to listen to you. I'm not going to push you away," and say, "Snap out of it." So, if you would share with us uh, the importance of knowing that there are people who are going to listen and take action for you, as opposed to just, "Yeah." Uh, get to the back of the line. We'll get to you when we can. Well, and, and that's the problem. And, and that's the problem that we see with the VA. Um, the VA is a large bureaucratic organization. Um, and, and it's just encumbered with so many impediments that make it tough. And, and, and there are some amazing VA clinicians. I don't want to sell them short. Right. Um, a lot of some of my best clinicians we've, we've you know, recruited from the VA. Um, so there's some, and there's amazing caring people, but as an, as an agency, as an element, it, it's a white elephant. And to, to kind of give you a sense of that, I think that's what you were talking about a moment ago when you asked about that. So if you look at the fact that, um, the, you know, when the war started, we had 25 million veterans on September 2001. We had 25 million veterans in the country. 
the VA's operating budget was roughly $40 billion at the time. Today, um, even after adding 6 million vets to the number, we only have 18 million vets in the country. So think about that for a minute. We went from 25, we added 6, we're up to 31, but today we have 18 million. That's interesting. The VA's budget during that time has gone from $40 billion to $300 billion. Hmm. So we've gone from $40 billion to, to $300 billion, and we've gone from 25 or $30 million down to 18 million people to care for. Well, only about 20% of veterans go to care for the, to the VA at any time anyway. 80% constantly go to the private sector. And then we lose 20 veterans each day to suicide. Mm-hmm. 14 of them don't get care in the VA. But all the resources are going to that, that small organization um, that cares for just 20% of our veterans. Yeah, it, It's terrible. And the, and the reason they don't go there is, number one, if they've got good insurance, why would you go? Why, you know, I have insurance at Mass General. Why would I go to the VA? And I tried to do it for a while, but it was just such a hassle. I didn't do it. Yeah. And if you're a young guy and you get treated like a, a number, and I think that was the point you made, that, that's what turns off a lot of people. Sure. When they come to home base, they're a person, um, and they're cared for as an individual. And our, our programs are highly tailored to each person. It's important to note, too, that uh, donations support so much of this. And uh, we talked earlier on a different subject. Uh, I'm not sure exactly when our podcast will hit, but we might as well mention the Run to Home Base program as a yearly event. It's one of many events that are sponsored by your organization. My point is you're doing what you can for people who cannot afford to have the help they need in that case. That's correct. And, 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 you know, I I, I might have sounded a little edgy about the budget on the VA. Well, well they've gone from $40 billion to $300 billion. Um, We haven't seen a penny, and we have to raise every nickel, and so we care for thousands of people every year. We raise the money. We, we're supported by a grateful nation of people that want to make sure our veterans get the care they need, so we have to raise about $30 million a year the hard way. Uh, and over the past 20 years, we've never see, received a nickel of reimbursement from the VA for any of them. And every single patient, every single veteran we care for should be able to receive care from the VA. Right. And so, right. It, you know, I mean, it, it's a little frustrating that, that we can't do that and break the code on that. But, you know, that's why we're here. There were there was an event uh, pre-COVID that I was very lucky enough to attend, and I think I emceed part of it. I, I know I did because I was on a stage with some of you guys. I'm not sure if you were there, but uh, there was one testimonial from an officer who, uh, and I don't remember his name, but I remember his story. Before we conclude, uh, and we'll give the web address and how people can help and all that, just share with us, no names, a story or two of soldiers, veterans who've come through the program and have set their lives on a, on a new path of success. And that inspires people everywhere when you hear stories like that. Do you have a couple? Yeah, I mean, I've got, I can give you a, a, what I think is a pretty good veteran story, and I'll also give you a military family story. Sure, uh, that'd be great. Which kind of brings Zach's side of it. And it was probably... Um, Probably a month and a half ago, I, I go to all our graduations. Every two weeks, 24 veterans fly in from across the country or drive in from local. Mm. Um, but we house them for two weeks at a hotel. Um, they, you know, they get all their care and stuff. Um, they, and they basically put hit the pause button on their life for two weeks while we get them, you know, to a healthy condition. And this, I, I, I always try and have a chance to talk to them. There's one group of people I always go out of my way to meet with, and it's our Vietnam veterans that come to the program because they got screwed. So bad. Oh, yes. Um, Hmm. And so this gentleman I spoke with, um, very humble man, was with the 5th Special Forces in Vietnam. 
and if you ever saw the movie The Green Berets with John Wayne, sure that's did. the fifth group. Yep, yep, okay. So he was one of those guys. Um, he did two tours in Vietnam during the war. He did a third he didn't take credit for because he went back into Vietnam in a covert manner after the war to rescue some people. <laughs> he didn't count that one wow. because it wasn't official. Wow. After that, he became one of the one of the founding members of Delta Force. And as a member of Delta Force, he was part of the Iran rescue hostage mission. Um, he then fought in Panama, Grenada. He was in Desert Storm, and his final combat action was in Mogadishu, and if you've seen the movie Black Hawk Down, he was one of the Delta Force members oh my that was fighting in Somalia. What a life story this guy has. What a bio. Holy smokes. And, and if you think of it, it, the fact that he was carrying around trauma for 50 years while he continued to serve, he's the epitome of why I do what I do. Hmm. You know Definitely. what I mean? Think of what he gave back to this country. Um, and even to this day, af after the course was over, he reached back out to us because it had such a positive effect to him. He works for one of these tactical gear companies, and he said that the uh, the little backpacks we gave the, uh, the the veterans when they come through the program were kind of flimsy. So he's working with his company <laughs> to now get them something more substantial and less wimpy. I love um, it. I love it. But but I mean, but that's the epitome of a guy we take care of. Um, not only that, I mean, the, I mean the countless Navy SEALs we've taken care of, um, Green Berets, and just rank and file service members that have just had their life taken away from them. Uh, because of experiences. And then on the family side, there was this young woman, Tina, uh, who came through the program. She was one of the first uh, uh, women that came through our, our spouse program for the families of the fallen. And, and again, th we're the only program in the country that has a dedicated program for these people. Um, and Tina um, was married to a Marine um, and had an idyllic kind of life going on where they were young newlyweds. They had a little baby. Um, and then her husband came back from his second deployment and, and really wasn't doing well. And things progressed to get worse and worse and worse, and he wasn't getting the help he needed. He started drinking. There was some domestic issues. He decided, he knew, he recognized it, and he moved out of the house. And he would basically, you know, FaceTime um, his wife and daughter every night to say goodnight to the little girls so that she didn't feel not loved, et cetera. And then one day, um, they were on the FaceTime just before they uh, got the little girl to say goodnight. And the guy said to her, hey, I want to show you something. And then he pulled out a handgun, put it under his chin, and she screamed no, and he pulled the trigger. Oh, my God. Wow. So can you imagine that if somebody that you married, you would say, the person you love most in the world, you watch that happen and, and were helpless mm -hmm. to do anything about it. She described herself as a basket case for the next year. Um, we, we had partnered with an organization called TAPS. It's a national organization, Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors. And they're the largest umbrella group for families of the fallen. And they had asked us to create a program similar to that two-week program for veterans for this group of fam family members that had witnessed the suicide or walked in on it. Um, by far the most injured people we deal with um, because of all the complicated grief associated with watching someone you marry take their life. Um, mm. There's anger, frustration, sadness, guilt, you name it. It's all piled in there, and it's a tangled mess. Um, and many of these people become suicidal, and we're now finding mm. the children as young as eight talking about suicidal ideations having witnessed a suicide. Um, so this is one of those remarkable programs that we watched the transformation of these women primarily. Um, so far, it's been all women spouses that have, have participated um, we watched them transform from the shell of these people they were 
to functioning, thriving people once again. Um, and, and it's because of the amazing clinical team we have that, that has the, the tools in the tool bag to help work with them and then provide these young women uh, and sometimes older women um, the tools they need to reclaim their life. And, and, you know, because, you know, they, they have to take on this persona of a grieving widow for the rest of their life in some people's mind, which is ridiculous. You know, they'll, they'll, when they see friends of their, their old, their former husband, um, they all expect them to never date again, you know, you never date again to wear the black on in the rest of their life. And for some cases it's been 10 years and they want to move on. And so having other people that are going through that shared experience, which it, that's what it's about. There's a lot of power that they're able to get having going through this with a group of people that traveled that same journey. You're sharing those two examples did a lot for the audience listening to this, just to bring it home to the human side. It's it's definitely uh, an important venture for us to write checks to support organizations like this. And you're a terrific spokesperson. You, you got the right gig at the right time. <laughs> and uh, it, it's important to spread the word. There's a great billboard on the Massachusetts Turnpike outside the city, just outside, uh, which, of course, abuts Fenway Park. And we should mention the contributing factor here of the Red Sox, the Red Sox Foundation. You want to talk a little bit about them? Yeah, I, I, you know, the Red Sox, so not many people realize, you know, because it was such a medical program, this was the Red Sox idea. Uh, it was based on a visit to Walter Reed that was supposed to last an hour after uh, the, the 2007 World Series. They went to the White House in 2008 for the meet and greet with the president, but they went from there to Walter Reed. And, and from that visit, um, it, the one-hour visit lasted five hours, and when they walked out of there, they said, we need to do something about this, because they saw these catastrophically injured young men and women, as, as you can imagine. Um, and and that, they were moved by this, and, and, and you know, rightfully so, right? I mean, when you see you know, all these young 17-, 18-year-old, 19-year-old kids that are just catastrophically injured, you've you got to be made out of stone. But, but usually what happens is people stop at the part of, Somebody should do something about this. They actually put words to deeds and then stepped up to the plate and started, they, part, they made a decision to partner with MGH, and that made the, all the difference in the world. Um, and by their partnership, they have truly been able to assist us um, in, in, in giving us a bully pulpit on Nesson. And every year when we get ready to do the run, um, what's amazing is we, all these people contact us, and they find out not only they want to support the run, but they connect people to care. So our phones ring for care, and we get a lot of financial mm. support. I, I did a couple interviews yesterday as part of Memorial Day to talk about the run. Um, and, and amazingly enough, you know, I, as I mentioned, we get supported by a grateful nation. Um, $18,000 came in in donations yesterday. Oh, wow. Uh, let me just mention a couple of things because a podcast has a, a worldwide audience. Nesson is New England Sports Network, where the Red Sox are featured every, every game. The Red Sox have done a remarkable job. They're known for the Jimmy Fund, but there's a whole lot more, and uh, we are aware of that in the community, no question about that. The other, the other interesting thing about it is they are the most philanthropic sports franchise in any sport. So baseball, football, basketball, hockey, no one raises more money for the community to give back. I think right now uh, the Red Sox are at $35 million that they've helped raise um, over the past decade through personal gifts from Tom Warner, uh, who, who, uh, you know, given millions of dollars of his own money, mm -hmm. uh, and the Red Sox, about $36 million they've raised to provide care for wounded veterans and family members. That's 
great news. There's a whole lot of work to be done. The mission is ongoing. I want to remind people it's homebase.org, homebase.org. Check it out. You'll be impressed. And if, if you're not connected to anyone in the military, you don't have an issue, think about making a donation to help out this uh, very important cause. Our veterans do so much for us, have done so much for us. General, what a treat. And you're a New Englander by trade and accent, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you're a Red Sox fan. You probably bleed Red Sox red as I do. Congratulations. Uh, I know there's a lot of work to be done, but uh, we're making a dent. That's really nice to have you on the show. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Jordan. I appreciate you giving the time and uh, awareness to this program. My thanks again to retired Brigadier General Jack Hammond, who heads up the Home Base Program, homebase.org, deserving of our respect and support. Thanks, as always, to Dan Tebow of Fast Twitch Media, Ken Carberry and everyone at Chart Productions, the studios here in Boston, where we produce this and many other programs and narrations and audiobooks. And as always, a very, very sincere and special token of my appreciation for those of you who have elected to subscribe and download this podcast. And the ratings and reviews are always welcome as well. Till next time, this is J.R saying, as always, be well so you can do good. Take care.